0: All right, 1 Samuel chapter 11, as you're opening your Bibles there, I'm going to give you a pop quiz today. You don't have to answer it out loud, but I just want you to kind of cook on this, and I'll just give you a clue. It's the same answer to all three questions, all right? So first question is, why is the current approval rating in Congress at 8%? Second question, why do failing businesses fire their leaders? Third question, by the way, sorry, I totally blew this. The, the usher's there, they got Bibles. If you don't have one, you're going to need one. Don't be shy, raise your hand. All right. <laughs> okay. So, pop quiz Why is the current approval rating in Congress 8%? Why do failing businesses fire their leaders? Third question Why do losing teams fire their coaches? What's the answer? Poor leadership. Poor leadership, that is the answer. And according to the Harvard Business Review, the single greatest problem facing our nation in 2014 is a lack of cohesive leadership. Imagine that. The problem is significantly compounded in times of crisis. When you are lacking leadership, when you have a crisis, it is profoundly compounded. Uh, Douglas Coupland in his book on crisis management, he writes, in a crisis, uh, most people have no idea what to say or do or feel or think. They become messes and they tend to remain messes. And this is exactly what happens. See, the, the issue is, is that when everything hits the fan, a lack of leadership brings total chaos. And so people become messes, and they tend to remain messes uh, when there is a crisis uh, and an absence uh, of leadership. Now, a perfect description of this is, well, it's right here in 1 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, We find God's people, and they're they're frankly, they're a mess. Uh, The big idea of our message today is leading through crisis. Leading through crisis, and we'll pick it up, First Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead, and all of the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. Now, if you've been going through this series with us, you know that First Samuel marks a huge transition in the nation of Israel. Uh, we're transitioning from the time of the judges to the time of the kings and the prophets. And this was a time when there was a severe lack of leadership uh, throughout Israel and throughout the land. He, severe lack of leadership, severe lack of cohesive leadership, certainly. And the book of Judges tells us that it was a time when everybody did what was right uh, in their own eyes. Very much like today. I think if, if there was to be a title over our days today, it would be a time when everybody does right, what's right in, in their own eyes. Um, and, and all this is about to change. Uh, but right now, even though we left off with the last chapter with, with, uh, Paul being, um, or rather Saul being presented to the, the nation as the king, he's yet to establish a cohesive leadership of the nation. And, and so faced with yet another enemy here in chapter 11, the Israelites are in in despair. They're complete disarray. They're completely despairing. Here's why. They're facing the Ammonites. And what you need to know about the Ammonites is that they were terrorists. They were wicked. Uh, They they didn't have any rules of war. Uh, They were notoriously brutal. As a matter of fact, if you read the prophet Amos, God speaking through the prophet Amos is going to tell these these Ammonites that they're going to be judged specifically for their brutality. Uh, God speaks about how, you know, they're so brutal they would uh, cut the children out of pregnant women. This is how brutal these people were. And making matters worse, these people have an axe to grind uh, with the men of Jabesh-Gilead because 400 years prior to this, the book of Judges also tells us that the Ammonites were soundly defeated by Jephthah. And, and so the Ammonites, they've held a grudge for 400 years. And now it's payback time. And now they, they want everything back. They want their land that was taken back with interest. So we continue, verse 2. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them. So they came to him. They're like, holy moly, we're afraid of you. Make, a, make a, a, a pact with us. Make a covenant with us. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all of your right eyes and bring reproach, on all, on all Israel. You want that car? You can have it. Just give me your eye, you know? So this is like, wow, that's a, you drive a steep bargain, man. That, that's a heavy price. Verse 3, Then the elders of, of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel, and then if there's no one to save us, we will come out to you. And, and they acquiesced to that. Now, that seems, does anybody else find that a little strange? Hold off! Wait! 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 Give me! Give me seven days. See if I can find somebody to come whip you. You know, and the guy's like, "Yeah, cool. All right, take your seven days." Well, here's the deal. He he is absolutely convinced uh, that uh, the, you know Nahash the Ammonite. He's absolutely convinced that he's got him. He's got him beat. He's convinced that they ain't gonna find anybody. And and besides that, it's better in the economy of war. For him to to just have them surrender—that's a better deal for him. Even though he's going to—he's de- convinced he's going to defeat them, you know. Just—he's not going to lose anybody. You know, you know, you get a, a victory, but maybe you lose a few warriors in the process. You know, it's kind of you expend time, you expend energy. He's like, yeah, I'll give you a week. Uh, so that you, know, you realize it's senseless and you give up and then it costs me nothing. So, so this, this is the idea. They're like, hey, let us, let us try and find someone to save us and if there's no one to save us, we'll, we'll come out to you. Verse 4, and so the messengers came to, to, to Gibeah of Saul and they told the news in the hearing of the people and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Right, you think? Hey, you know this guy's here and he's going to kill us all. But if he'll enter into a covenant with us, but it's going to cost you your right eye. And so everybody there, they're they're weeping and all. Now that word covenant, it literally means uh, an uh, alliance or a pledge, an alliance or a pledge. And and the the, the issue is is that well, the idea the people of of, of Gilead they they're, they're seeking a compromise. By, by pledging to serve Nahash, this is the issue. They're they're seeking to compromise, and when when it comes to crisis management, and that's what we're talking about here. How how do we live lives of of managing crisis? Because you know there are the crises that are going to come. And and is it going to be chaos and and total out of control, or are we going to be able to manage through crisis? And when it comes to crisis management, listen, this is the foundational premise for our study here. Put on the screen for you. You will either compromise with evil, or you will confront evil. In your life, when you are managing crisis, you're either going to compromise with evil, or you're going to confront evil. Paul said this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 6. He said, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. Now, he's talking about compromising. Uh, he says, how can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And so the idea, of Paul talking to the Corinthians, he's saying, look, look, you, you, you want to live a compromising life where you think you can live with the devil and everything's going to be cool. It ain't going to go that way. It just, it just fundamentally doesn't work. It's oil and water, man. You, you can't, you know, have light with darkness. You can't have Christ and the devil. It's not going to work. And yet, many people try and compromise in their lives in this way. I, you know, I was praying to the Lord. I'm like, Lord, give me, give me an example here that, that, that describes this. Here's the example that came to me. We have a, a, a close family friend. And here's a gal. She, she, you know, fell in love with a guy who's not a believer. Now, she, she's a believer. And the Bible speaks about this. The Bible says that, they, look, you're not supposed to have this kind of fellowship. You're not supposed to team up in this way. You're not, you're not to be unequally yoked. Uh, this, this verse in 2 Corinthians says in another translation. And, and she knew this, but now, man, her heart's engaged. And so this guy, you know, she's thinking, well, what am I going to do? And now, you know, she, she landed this fish, and now he wants to marry her. And so what, it, what is she going to do? Well, here's the thing, as she's kind of you know, contemplating this, basically what he told her is, look, you can raise any kids that we're going to have, you can raise them any way you want. And so she compromised. She thought, you know what? I don't want to give this guy up. And, uh, and, and other than, you know, other than the fact he doesn't know Jesus and he's going to hell, he's a great guy. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and so she, she decided, well, we'll get married. Because after all, you know, he, we, the compromise is, any of our kids, well, he'll, he'll let me, you know, raise them to, to know the Lord. Well, here's what she failed to, to consider The Bible says, "Be not deceived. Bad company corrupts good character." Right, and so the fact is, and if she doesn't have an unbelieving husband, he's not going to be there for any sort of meaningful encouragement to her spiritually speaking. You know, he's not going to be there to pray with her, to read the word with her, to encourage her, to point her to the Lord. And, and really, you know, the, the, the deal is, I mean, if you want to think about it in these terms, you know, I always talk about marriage as like a boat, and you get into this boat, and a whole analogy that I give for that, but you, you know, continuing that analogy, you know, when you're in the boat of marriage, you know, you, you, you're going in a particular direction. Now, if you've got a fundamental argument with, you know, the two of you on board about which compass you're going to follow, well, that boat's not going anywhere meaningful, right? And so she didn't count on any of this stuff. She didn't count on the fact that, look, I'm going to be in this boat with, with this guy who doesn't believe. And, you know, in terms of the, the course and the direction of our life, what's well, it's going to be constantly problematic. Worse, she didn't, she didn't think about the influence and the effect that this man would have on her children. And now that, you know, they bring children into this mix and all, yeah, you're free to raise your kids any way you want. But listen, dad sets the tone in the home. And, and so without any sort of meaningful follow-through, what, what, ha- what do you think happened to that gal's kids when they got a little bit older? Well, I ain't going to church every Sunday, I'll tell you that. It's not happening. She compromised. And her compromise came with a high price. Listen, compromise always costs more than you think. We compromise because, oh, you know what? This is going to actually save me. This is going to be a shortcut. This is going to be a, well, I'll give a little to get a little. It always costs more than you think. And so you're either going to compromise with evil or you're going to confront evil. Now, we're going to look at the two sides of that. Uh, What happens when you compromise? Well, our text neatly gives us uh, three uh, results of, of what happens when you compromise. First one, if you're taking notes, compromise results in three things. Number one, compromise results in blindness. Compromise results in blindness. Look again there in verse two. What's he say? He says, well, yeah, I'll make a compromise with you. I'll make a covenant with you. On this condition, that I can put out your right eye. Now, it seems kind of like, you know, a weird kind of request on his part. What's going on here? Well, it's actually very strategic on Nahash's part for him to say this. Now, first of all, taking out their right eye completely handicaps them for battle in a couple of different ways. One of the things it does is it, it, it removes their depth perception. And when you only have one eye, you lose your depth perception. And your depth perception is pretty important you know, in a fight, in a battle, guy takes a swing at you, and it's the depth perception that, you know, helps you to avoid to avoid that thing. Another thing, by like removing the right eye, again, in battle, you know, if you hold a shield, you're going to hold it in your left hand. Most people predominantly right-handed. You hold the shield in your left hand. And so what does this do? Well, it, it blinds you completely in your left eye. All you can see out of is your right eye. And so what he does, effectively, Nahash, by removing the right eye, is that he completely blinds them for battle. And so they never see the blow coming. And this this can be incredibly destructive. I knew a guy. He was a missionary. And uh, he decided that uh, he was going to compromise on the mission field. And he thought, you know what, uh, eh, I'm thousands of miles away, you know, from home, and, and, and I can have a beer when, when I'm out here. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, the reason I don't drink at home is because it could cause people to stumble. But, you know, I can have a beer out here on the mission field. And uh, one beer led to two, two beers lead to three. And, uh, and now the guy, man, he's, he's, he's in a place that he shouldn't be. He's doing stuff that he shouldn't do. Again, the Bible says bad company corrupts good character. The Bible says don't be drunk with wine. Therein is dissipation of the Holy Spirit. Well, here he is. He's hanging out with the wrong people. He's doing the wrong things. And one beer becomes two, two, three, you know, and so on. Before you know it, this guy is completely blinded. And he never sees the blow coming. And, and in that state, he became blind to the attack of the enemy, and he wound up having an, an adulterous affair. Now, it was, you know, absolutely destructive to that man's life, to his family's life, to the life of his ministry. And, and the, the application here for us is, is very simple, and I would ask you to, to really prayerfully consider it. Is it possible that you've compromised in some area where, where the enemy has blinded you. And now because of your compromise, because of you know, the, the, the way that, that you have, have compromised in, in a particular area, now you're blind to that. You can't see the blows coming. Maybe I have you write that down, kind of take a walk with it. Leads us to our second point, compromise results in reproach. Again, notice there in verse 2, Nahash says, hey, look, I'll compromise with you. I'll enter a covenant with you. On the condition, look, I can put out your right eye and, what's he say? Bring reproach. Hey, I want to maim you so I can bring reproach to you all and to your God, man. And and this is so on the, the attack of the enemy. That word reproach, if you're taking notes, it means to taunt. It means to scorn. It means to blaspheme. Now, going back to my example of this missionary that I knew, what do you think the result was of his sin? Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 that there's nothing hidden that will not be revealed or made known. And so this thing that happened, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. No, it doesn't. Oh, when God's involved. Your sin will find you out. And so what do you think happened when his sin found him out? It brought reproach in a profound way. And what happened was people, they, they not only left the guy's ministry, but some of them, in fact, left the church altogether. Some of them walked away from the faith. And, and, and we all know and have experienced things like that. You have people in your life who are watching you. Your kids are watching you. And they want to see how you're living. And if you allow Compromise to come into your life, what you're doing is you're opening the door for the enemy to bring reproach, not only against you, but against your God. And I see it happen all the time. I see people who come into my office and parents, you know, they're there with their kids and, and they're going for counseling, and they'll, the parent, they're talking him off, so the kid will just roll his eyes, and the rolling of the eyes says everything. It's like you are completely a hypocrite. And and the compromising way in which they live their lives has caused their children to have reproach for the Lord. Listen, the the issue is, man, this compromise, it results in reproach. And and the, the question for you is, are you compromising? Do you have compromise in your life? Is there any area in your life, if it was exposed, that it would bring reproach? Upon you, upon your family, upon your God. And again, by the way, as I'm putting this message together and I'm praying it, and certainly now as I'm delivering it, I would say the Holy Spirit speak into my heart as I ask you the question, are you compromising? Is there any area in your life where you're compromising where if it was revealed that it would bring reproach. And I just feel like the leading of the Holy Spirit when I say that. Hey, do you have an area in your life if it was revealed? And some of you, man, your heart just starts to to pump at this point. I don't want that thing revealed. Listen, the the issue, it's very simple. Listen, if you're compromising right now, stop. Stop that compromise. Don't make that compromise repent. You can do that today. I'll give you an invitation at the end of the message today to do that. And I'm not going to, you know, make a big production of it. I'm just going to give you the invitation and an honest confession between you and God. Some of you need to repent today because you've compromised. It's so critically important. This compromise, man, it results in reproach. And you see it all over. I mean, you go on a blog you, you watch any sort of news story and you start reading the comment section. And really quickly, what does it turn to? It turns to scorning of, of things of Christianity. Almost, almost any news story, you go to it and that's what you will find. Why is it? Because so many people have brought reproach to the name of the Lord. Well, the third thing we see about compromise is that compromise results in despair. Absolutely compromised results in despair. You look at uh, verse 4 and it says that all the people lifted up their voices and they wept. They were completely despairing. It's interesting, Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus warned Peter, hey, you know what, Jesus, or Peter, you're going to deny me three times. If you, uh, you know, turn over to John 18 real quick. Uh, you guys will be my test subject here, first service. Uh, See if i got time to do this. John 18. So so Jesus warned Peter. He says, look, you're going to deny me, Peter, three times. Peter insisted, I'm never going to deny you. Everybody else will deny you. I'll never deny you. John 18, verse 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus. They've taken him captive now in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, you know, he hacked off Malchus's ear, and Jesus said, put your sword away, Peter, and he put Malchus's ear back on, and now they're taking him away. And so Simon Peter followed Jesus. We know he's following him at a distance, and so did another disciple, the disciple John. Um, and now that disciple was known to the high priest... "...and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter, verse 16, stood at the door outside." Now well, here we see the beginning, a compromise in Peter's life. He's, he, he's following Jesus, but now, because there's some, some personal risk involved, well, now he's starting to compromise. Now he's starting to leg back. And now he's there at the door. But then the other disciple, John, who was also known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door, and he brought Peter in... And then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are also one of this man's disciples, are you? Uh, And, uh, or you're not one of, you're not also one of these men's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. First denial. And now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them, and he warmed himself. Now again, more compromise there, and there's an all kinds of you know metaphor there where we can make that to where how we in our lives we say, Hey, I want to follow Jesus, but you know there's some distance, there's some risk. I'm not I'm I'm just, I'm gonna follow here, you know, covertly. Are you one of his followers? No, I'm not one of his followers, but You know, oh, yeah, I'm going to have one foot in, one foot out. And now what do I do? Well, I'm going to warm myself by the enemy's fire. You know, the the, the needs that I have, the way that I'm living my life. Man, I'm going to, you know what, I'm just going to say that I follow Jesus, but it's really the enemy's fire that I'm going to warm myself by. Skip over to verse 25. And now Simon Peter stood, and he warmed himself. And therefore they said to him, Are you not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and he said, I am not. Second denial. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear that Peter had cut off, Malchus's ear here, he said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Aren't you that clown that cut his cut Malchus's servant's ear off? My relative's ear? Didn't you weren't you that guy? and peter then denied again and immediately a rooster crowed and if you read matthew's gospel it says at this point that peter went out and he wept bitterly listen compromise brings despair and peter was was so despairing that that when when we go to uh, to to John's gospel, and I won't have you turn there for time's sake, but at the end of John's gospel, what we see is Jesus had told his disciples, he resurrected from the dead, and he told them, hey, listen, you know, I got, I got plans for you guys, and, and so hold on, wait for me, I'm going to come to you, and what happens during that time is Peter bails, and he tells his disciples, his fellow disciples, he's like, I'm going fishing. And, and the, the implication seems to sort of be, it be that, you know, what Peter was saying is, look, I blew it. There's no hope for me. You all are waiting for Jesus to come back, and he's going to tell you about, you know, the work that you, that you need to do and all, but, but there's no hope for me, because I denied the Lord three times. And we know that this is what was cooking in his head, because when he goes out fishing, the Lord appears to him, brings him, you know, he, he comes to running up on shore to see the Lord, and the Lord three times asked him the question, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Reinstating him. Now he said it three times because he denied him three times. And so we know that's what the issue is cooking here. But the point for us is that compromise in our life, when we compromise, we will be in a place of despair. Oh, it, 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 it's over for me. It's, it, it's, too, it's too late for me. Listen, that is exactly where Satan wants us to be. It's exactly where Satan wants you to be. He wants you to compromise. He wants you to, to despair. And he wants you to give up. And so what we see here, and, and you got to get it, is that Nahash is very much like Satan. He, he wants people to serve him, and he attempts to intimidate them into compromise. He he wants to blind them and take away their ability to effectively fight against him. He's not just content to bring defeat, but he wants to bring humiliation, and he wants to exalt himself as he brings reproach against God. And ultimately, Satan leaves his victims in total despair. Are you in despair today? Are you like Peter where you think, you know, I I can come to the to church and, and all, but man, really, I, I, I'm just in a place of despair. Listen, you don't need to be in that place. These things come from compromise. But, but, but you, you, need, you don't have to compromise. You can confront the enemy. And we're going to talk about that in just a half a second. But listen, just in case there's any question in your mind about Nahash representing Satan. Can I tell you what Nahash means? Maybe you might want to circle his name nearby it. You can write the name serpent because that's what Nahash means. Snake. Who names their kid that, by the way? You know? Hey, look at him. You know what? He looks like your mom. Let's name him Snake. You know? (laughs) So... You know, here's the deal, you know, the, he is clearly a picture of Satan in our lives. And man, we compromise, it brings blindness, it brings reproach, it brings despair. And you can either compromise with evil, or the second option is that you can take the opportunity to confront evil. John Kennedy gave a speech back in the late 50s, and he said this in his speech, he said, the Chinese use two characters to write the word Crisis. One brush stroke of the character uh, stands for danger, and the other stands for opportunity. In a crisis, we must be aware of the danger, but we must also recognize the opportunity. The Bible says uh, something better and a little similar to that. It says this, Paul speaking to the Corinthians, No temptation has overtaken you except for such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation also will make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And so the temptation there, that's the temptation to cave in. That's the temptation to compromise. And what Paul says is, look, God's faithful and he's going to give you a way of escape. And that way of escape, hey, listen, we can, we can compromise with sin or we can confront sin, it's Always better to confront sin in your life. Now, confrontation requires three things. If you're taking notes, here's the first thing we see in our text, that confronting evil requires the leading of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, we continue. The people are lifting up their voices and they're weeping. Verse 5, and now there was Saul coming behind and he heard from the field and Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh, and the, then the Spirit, verse 6, of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. When I was a kid, uh, one time I made my mom cry. I say it one time because it, it only happened once, because my dad heard it, and then my dad made me cry, Right? <laughs> And now, why why did my dad make me cry? Where did his anger come from? And it was a righteous anger. Here's where his anger came from. His anger came from the place that, hey, his bride was being attacked. And and so what happened was, man, my, my father, in righteous anger, he absolutely put an end to it. And that's exactly, listen, that's exactly what Saul's doing here. Edmund Burke said this he said the only thing necessary for evil men to for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do something, and, or, or to do nothing. And what's happening here, Saul is not going to do nothing. He most definitely is going to do something. Now, we're going to see in a few chapters, Paul in a very similar situation with Goliath. They're facing the Philistines, and Goliath is shouting blasphemies against God. And, and it, it it's a very sad state of affairs in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, what happens to, to Saul. Because then he's in a place where exactly these men from Jabesh Gilead are in right now that that they're quaking, they're not willing to do anything, and he's going to be in that place as well. But the difference here is that Saul is led now by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit came upon him. And so the the reaction maybe of the flesh was not to do anything and to be fearful, but the reaction of the Spirit was to be fearful. Very angry indeed, and sometimes it is right and appropriate for us when we are filled with the Holy Spirit to react to to issues that bring reproach to God and issues that are that are flat wrong it 's right and appropriate to have a righteous anger. This is what Saul has here, and so again, confronting evil requires the, the leading of the Holy Spirit, and paul here or Saul here rather under the power of the Holy Spirit. He responds as he should. And I think it's worthwhile, by the way, just as we're considering this. Would you notice the the the, the, the way that this opportunity comes to Saul? Because I think this is important for each of us. The way that this opportunity comes to Saul. Listen, what's Saul doing when he hears this? What's Saul doing when this thing drops in his lap? What's Saul doing now when the Holy Spirit of God moves upon him to cause him to respond with a righteous anger? Anybody, what's he doing? He's coming home from work. He spent the whole day at work, and he's coming home. He didn't go seeking this thing out. This thing dumped in his lap. Now, guys, you know, ladies, those of you that work, you, you, at the end of my work day, you know, I'm not looking for, you know, to confront evil and to go to battle with the enemy. I just want some peace and quiet. You know, at the end of the work day. That's why guys love the television. It just loves, it gives unconditionally. Doesn't ask you a single question. Doesn't want anything from you. It just gives unconditionally. So you come home and you're like, oh, thanks. Let's just put all that out. Listen, here's, here's the lesson here is that evil is going to come. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And, and the enemy is not gonna, you know, it's not like you're gonna get into a situation and, 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 you know, the enemy's gonna come upon you and you're gonna go, hey, 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 man, <sighs> really bad day for this, man. I, mean, I had a really rough time. My boss is riding me like a horse, man. And, and, you know, things are just, can you, can you just, can you cool it for a minute? It's not like the enemy's gonna go, oh, okay, yeah, I'll give you a break. No, the enemy's looking for you not to be in a good way, you know? He's looking for you to be tired at the end of the day. That's when he comes. That's when he's like, hey, come on, let's get this guy, you know? That's when he piles on. So so for us, seeing what's happening here, it is so critically important to understand, man, confronting evil requires the Holy Spirit, and I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So when I'm coming home from work, hey, that's a great time for me to be in prayer. When I'm exhausted, that's a great time for me to be saying, Lord, please help me. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. I don't know what is waiting for me when I get home, but Lord, you do. And would you just, would You prepare me? Would you give me what I need? Man, this is why it's so important, you know, when you start your day. And, and you know, Sarah Rupert, who, who led our, our mops ministry for so long, she'd always tell the girls, look, you don't have the luxury of not getting up early with your kids. You know, you, 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 oh, I'm tired, I want to sleep in. She, she, you, you desperately need to have some quiet time with the Lord, to read His Word, to be in prayer, to be equipped and ready to pour into your kids that day. Because, man, confronting evil requires the leading of the Holy Spirit and our world is filled with evil. And so, man, it is so important that we do this, that we be filled with the Holy Spirit. Second point, the idea is, you know, what are, what are we going to do? The, the conf- confronting evil, what are we going to do? First is we, it requires that we be filled with the Holy Spirit. Second one is that confronting evil requires the fear of the Lord. It requires the fear of the Lord. Verse 7 And so we read, Saul Saul hears this, he's angry, verse 7, so he took a yoke of oxen and he cut them in pieces and he sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers saying, whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so in a shrewd man coupling Samuel with this, you know, because Samuel has great influence in, in the land, Saul not so much, so he's smart to be able to say, hey, I'm with Samuel, Samuel's with me. So whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. Now, I love the fact that Saul, not only he becomes righteously indignant, and he reacts appropriately, and immediately... And and not only that he reacts immediately for himself to take action, but that he gets all up in the people's face and he calls them to action. Because they're not taking action, they're just weeping, lamenting. They already started by saying, hey, we'll compromise, let's do a covenant, let's give up. And now it's like, well, it's going to cost you, it's going to cost you dearly. Oh, what what hope is there for us? Let's, you know, just, we're going to have to give up to the enemy. And Saul is just outraged and indignant. John Agno said this, he said, leadership is an interactive conversation that pulls people toward becoming comfortable with the language of personal responsibility and commitment. Now I think about this in light of of what Saul did, it cracks me up, look, that's all Saul's doing here. He's just having an interactive conversation. Hey, let me send you, uh, you hack up an animal and send you a piece of it and tell you this is what's coming for you if you don't step up here. I'm going to do the same thing to you kind of thing to your animal. Now, so he's having this interactive conversation. He's just getting people comfortable with the language of personal responsibility. You have a responsibility here that now admittedly, Saul Styles more mafia than man of god, right? But listen, Saul understands something here that the people don't. And this is super important. See, many presume that the world is the ultimate threat and that God's function is to offset the evil of the world. But, but the biblical position is that God is far scarier than the world. We have to have a fear of God. Now, a lot of people misunderstand the fear of God, but listen, here's what Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 10, 28. He said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. We have to have a fear of the Lord. And the idea here is that, look, what Saul understands is that failure to step up and defend the the people of God and to, to defend the cause of God and to defend the name of God, if they fail to do that, well, then what's happening is they're not living in the fear of the Lord, they're living in the fear of men. And so if they fail to step up and do that, for them, it would be a gross sin, and they would be punished greatly for that sin. And the thing is, we think so often in terms of sin, in terms of the things that we do, and not as often as as the things that we don't do. There are sins of omission, there are sins, or there are sins of commission, but there's also sins of omission, things that we leave out, things that we should do, and we're going to give an account for both. Turn, turn to Matthew 25 real quick. Go to verse 32, well, that's where we'll start. Jesus said all the nations will be gathered before him, God the Father, and he will separate them one from another. As a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left, and then the king will say to those on his right hand, come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, for I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me drink, I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and he will say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, You did it to me. Now, Jesus could have stopped there. He's making an important point. Now, he could have stopped there, and we could have understood, oh, I need to do it. And we could have connected the dots that by implication, look, if I don't do it, there's a problem. But this is so important that Jesus continues a very elaborate instruction just to make sure we don't miss this key lesson that he's teaching. Verse 41, and then he will also say to those on the left hand, the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they also will hear him saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Listen, it is very critically key important. That we understand that we we have to live our lives in the fear of the Lord. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is where this whole thing starts. And what I am astounded by today, as I look at our, our world, is an absence of the fear of the Lord. I see great men of God have these catastrophic failures, and I ask the question, where? where on earth was the fear of the Lord? And it's something that we have to challenge ourselves and really take a walk with, look at our face in the mirror and say, if I really feared the Lord, would I be spending my money like this? If I, if I really feared the Lord, would I be spending my time like this? If, if I really feared the Lord, would I be using my talents that God has given to me like this? See, it's, it, we have to just contemplate, does, does our life reflect fear of the Lord? The fear that says, you know what, I will give an account. Jesus saying, look, you, you, know, you, you fear a lot of stuff. Don't fear, you know, men, the things of men, those that can kill your body but can't kill your soul. You might want to have some godly fear, the one that you're going to stand before, whose eyes are like a flaming fire, who nothing gets by on him. Who doesn't make his decisions based on public opinion or spin. When you stand before the Lord, it'll be you, and the Lord, and that's it. And you will be bare and naked, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. got the song screaming in my head, nowhere to run to, baby! And there is nowhere to run, baby, you know? And we need to have that godly fear. Not afraid of God, but a fear that says, I will give an account for my life. This is the idea here. Saul gets this. Look, let me hack this thing up, make it abundantly clear to you. And what he's doing is he's shocking the people, bring them to a place of where is the fear of God in your life? Hey, listen, the third thing that we need to do to confront evil, confronting evil requires that we exercise faith. It requires that we exercise faith back in our text beginning in verse 8 says, when he, Saul, numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel, were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000, so his tactic worked, fear of the Lord came upon them, they're responding, verse 9, and they said to the messengers who came, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help then the messengers came, and they reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. And therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we shall come out to you. They're talking about uh, talking to Nahash. They said to Nahash, Hey, tomorrow we'll come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. Now, there's, there's a little bit of deception there. You know, he, they're letting him believe that they're coming out to him to surrender, they, he doesn't know that they're coming out to him with over 300,000 of their best friends to pay him a little godly visit there. But hey, tomorrow we'll come out to you. And you can do whatever seems good to you. And, and, and so it was, verse 11, on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch. That means somewhere between 2 and 6 o'clock in the morning. That's when the morning watch was. So They showed up in the middle of the night, Navy and SEAL style. And, uh, and they killed the Ammonites until the heat of the day, and it happened that those who survived were scattered, <clears throat> so that no two of them were left together. And then the people said to Samuel, who is he who said, shall Saul reign over us, bring the men that we may put them to death? Oh yeah, now. It's my, remember we finished the last chapter, and there were those men that said, yeah, we're going to follow you, and those there men, they're like, who's Saul? right? Now, everybody wants to get on a winning team. You know, everybody wants to get on the bandwagon. Ah, I was a Charger fan from way back, you know. And so, <laughs> hey, shall Saul reign over us? <laughs> Bring the men that, 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 that we may put him to death. But Saul, now smart man here. Now, Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Not part of my notes, just kind of an important side point. Sometimes if the enemy can't get you to fail in one area, he waits until you have a success. And then when you've had success, now he sneaks up and goes, maybe I can get you to fail in this way. Man, how bad would it have been if, if Saul would have taken revenge at this point? Verse 13, but Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Now we're going to stop there. Uh, Confronting evil requires that we exercise faith. I want to develop this much more next week in in chapter 12. But let me make this point as it pertains to this exercise of faith. I want you to pay attention to the faith of the men of Jabesh Gilead. Okay? Okay? See, because what we see in these guys, man, in a sense, they were in a good place. Even though they're weeping, even though they're mourning. Here's why. Because they absolutely knew two things. Number one, they knew they had a need to be saved. Who's going to save us? And number two, they knew that they couldn't save themselves. And so when they heard the promise of salvation, they believed it and they trusted it. Here's my question for you as we close to you. Maybe today you're you're in one of a couple places. Maybe today <coughs> you're you know that you need salvation, and you've come to the to the realization that you can't save yourself. And, and and if that's you, just as these men from Jabesh Gilead, what was required for them to have the victory, they had to trust and they had to believe. They had to they had to place their faith in the in the message look, you're gonna be saved. Help's coming. If you're here today and and you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, you don't know for sure if, if you die today that you're going to heaven, can I tell you that help is coming and you can know for sure? It requires faith. We have to understand very clearly, look, you have a need to be saved. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And if you're here today outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ and you haven't trusted Him for your salvation, or you're trusting in your own works, or you're thinking that if somehow when I get to heaven, there's going to be some weighing of my good works and my bad works. If my good works outweigh my bad works, I'll go to heaven. Look, you're not trusting in Jesus if that's your faith. The Bible says you need to trust in His completed work on the cross. And so if you're in that place where you recognize, I need a Savior, and I believe He's Jesus, and if, you'll, and if you'll confess him, and if you'll just receive him today, like the men of Jabesh Gilead, you can be saved. And so that's, 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 that's for one group of you all here. There's another group of you here. Some of you today, you're living your life in fear and not in faith. And you've made a covenant with the enemy. You've tried to compromise in a particular area. And there's, a, there's a whole broad application for this, and I'll leave it to the Holy Spirit to be confirming in your life. But maybe today you would say, look, I do know the Lord. I am saved, but I've compromised. And man, if this compromise came to life, it would be destructive. It would be horrible. I'd ask you to prayerfully consider, hey, today, do you need to repent?